Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on the podcast. On point, let us unspin the talking points when it comes to vaccines and what Canadians should actually know about a possible delivery date. We'll talk about the latest on the Young Street murder trial and the defense's most important key witness, an American expert who claims autism is the reason the accused is not criminally responsible and why many cultures refuse to put their loved ones in long-term care. Let's get talking. This is uh, an economic measures that, uh, of course, will be a matter of confidence, but I am, I am uh, uh, reasonably confident that none of the opposition parties wants an election right now. We certainly don't want one. Mm-hmm. Are you sure you don't want an election? You sure about that? Because even during a pandemic, there is always politics at play. Alex Pearson with you on this December 1st. And here we are ushering in uh, what gives us, I guess, positive thoughts that we might finally have a white Christmas, a real possibility this year. Um, And I actually don't mind the snow until December 26th. And then I'm done with it. But uh, it also, I think, working from home is so much easier to stomach. But then after Christmas, this this all has to melt and go away. But certainly a lot of excitement in our house, you know, as the rain turned white, the sun bolted out of bed and uh, looked out the window and it was like, it's a signal that you can go down the slide at warp speed. That's what he's most excited about. So it was a lot of fun, certainly for the kids. And that's what they need these days. Also uh, noting that today is the one year anniversary of the first COVID case documented in uh, Wuhan. I mean, you remember back to those days, remember, we were just all watching it from afar. Because that'll never come to our shores, right? Yeah, how long we were. But there you go. The uh, finance minister warning, of course, of this dark, lonely winter full of grief. Thank you to that case spawning around the world now. And that was her warning Monday uh, as she laid out hundreds of billions in spending. And we are just hemorrhaging money on this crisis. And when you look at it, you know, it's not the kind of money we're putting. We're not putting this into health care. We're not investing it into long-term care or schools or education. All these hundreds of billions being shoveled out the door. This is just band-aiding our way through a, cri- a crisis that we we knew was coming. That's what's so frustrating about it. And now we're just trying to get ahead of it with no real end in sight or any kind of real plan, because the only real plan is one with a vaccine. And we just can't get a straight answer on it from this particular government. And I think it is the issue of vaccines, why I absolutely think that the liberals will have no problem if the opposition votes against the new spending and take us to the polls, because right now, you know, folks are distracted and the liberals are still riding high in the polls. And for the moment, the public at large is still buying the message that Trudeau's spinning because they seem to trust his big portfolio. 
because we were so early in signing uh, deals with so many different vaccine producers, we actually have a very good position for uh, receiving vaccines and being able to distribute them to Canadians. Uh, but those conversations are obviously ongoing. And ultimately, uh, getting to the starting line uh, is something we're all focused on. Uh, but we also need to be focused on getting to that finish line and getting uh, the majority of Canadians vaccinated. Nonsense. It is absolutely about the starting line, and we're nowhere near it. And, you know, the longer we take to get in the starting blocks, the bigger threat to Trudeau's polling numbers. So a winter election in the middle of a pandemic, not all that crazy, because he can blame the opposition for causing it, because the biggest threat Trudeau faces is when we actually start to see millions around the world rolling up their sleeves and that's when I think Canadians are going to start to lose patience. You know, sure, we have a big portfolio, but it's meaningless if it's not going in our arms. And uh, I was reading an article today in two months time. So we're talking like late January, early February. The U.S. will have vaccinated 120 million people. Can you imagine? And, and seeing those pictures of our neighbors getting their freedom back, you know, being protected, going on trips, opening up their economies. That's when Canadians are going to wake up and go... What the heck have we been doing all this time? And the block leader, I think, pointed it out uh, perfectly today. I am surprised, I must say, that people are not reacting more strongly to that. When people will start seeing pictures of American people getting the vaccine, while we will be watching the press conference of the government of Quebec telling the people... How many of us got sick in the last 24 hours and how many of us died in the last 24 hours? People might see things differently and might understand how bad was the negotiation uh, piloted by this prime mm -hmm. minister. There you go. Yeah. And uh, look, a lot of questions are being raised. Um, and the government's just refusing to answer the basics, just even on things like when's the delivery date? All we get is the finish line spin and the big portfolio spin. And Health Canada is expected to approve one of four vaccines that we have purchased in a matter of weeks. And so Trudeau was asked several times during his, uh, you know, cottage um, uh, media scrum, you know, why can't we get them shipped and in place, ready for rollout? And they're ready to go when the approval, you know, is given. And Trudeau says, well, we can't, can't do that, not until the approval. But Health Canada says, no, that's not true. They can be shipped in. And if we can get them now, it would make a whole lot of sense, get them in place, and then the rollout happens immediately, like what they're doing in the United States. All these other countries are doing that. So my guess, my Kreskin spidey census says, well, we can't get them ahead of time because, oh yeah, we're in line behind other countries. And that is because we didn't order them until August, which was months after other countries. So I do suspect we're going to see dribs and drabs of a rollout. You'll see a few vaccines roll in and I think Canadians will think, okay, great, we're on a path to freedom, but we will be months behind other countries. And so, sure, an election in the dead of winter in the middle of a second wave seems nuts. But what is worse for the Trudeau government is that the threat of late vaccines, what that poses to his polling futures, like let's say in the spring when everyone would like to maybe go to an election, he could be dealing with a vaccine disaster. So, you know, should Jugmeet Singh follow through with this threat and not support this fiscal update, 
I don't actually think Trudeau would mind one little bit if his government is brought down. So to me, it's all about the vaccines. And interestingly, and uh, the, the premier today was not at his press conference, which is a first, but uh, until the vaccines arrive, I thought it was interesting because Ge- uh, General Rick Hillier, who is um, in charge of rolling out the Ontario response, who also has no idea of any dates or information, he put out quite the motivation rally call for those who are tired or refuse to do their part. It's a little bit long, but I, th- I thought it was actually quite nice. And people are tired to say, oh, my goodness, we can't carry on. Well, guess what? You can. This is not the first time in our history Canadians have, have faced those incredible challenges and gotten through them. Just think uh, of the Canadians who went to World War I and faced the first gas attacks in April of 1915 and stood tall when the British and the French on their flanks ran and let the enemy come on to. Canadians stood tall through that incredible, frightening, uh, lethal and stressful period of time. And they were the same Canadians, their, their sons, their daughters, who won the Battle of Britain, who won the Battle of the North Atlantic, who went ashore on, on D-Day and fought in Italy to throw off the yoke of Nazism. They fought in Korea to do the same thing, and they continued that fight in Afghanistan. For us as Canadians, those were incredibly frightening things, horrible things, and they succeeded. They can do that. They can storm the beaches of Normandy. We can sit on our couch, stay away from everybody else, wear our mask, wash our hands, not touch our face. We can do that for the next months until we get the vaccine working through. Yeah, I'm in. I sit on my couch and watch press conferences all day long. So there you go. Look, it's a it's a rallying call, I guess. I mean, yeah, it is. It, it really is. We're not being asked to do much when you really put it in the big picture. Um, but I think people are just really tired of this thing. And so that vaccine, you know, when we start to see it, I was looking at polling today, 48% of Canadians say, well, they're not in a rush. Don't worry about it. We're good with other countries getting ahead of it. I just don't trust that polling because I really think it's when you start to see the optics of other countries, you know, those pictures you're going to see in the nightly news every day. Oh, look, I got my vaccine. And then so-and-so is going off to travel. Uh, Europeans will be traveling. Americans will be traveling and and Canadians will be locked down because we'll be pariahs like we were back in 2003 with SARS. So the vaccine is very much at the center of uh, of the conversation for the next long few months. We will uh, watch carefully what's going on around the world. Uh, Our Health Canada regulators are paying close attention at the same time as we are currently, or they are currently evaluating uh, the four top vaccines that have come forward right now. We will ensure that all the steps are taken to make sure they're safe for Canadians so that when we start uh, rolling them out to Canadians, people can get that vaccine with confidence and know that we are getting through this pandemic together. Yes, and that is what sounds like a whole lot of spin to say, you know, we're just going to sit back and watch everybody else get it just to make sure it's safe, right? That's what it is. It's just we're, we're taking the slower approach will be the new spin point, I guess. But I was reading, you know, once the FDA approves the vaccine, Americans are going to start inoculating within 48 hours, which is unbelievable. And uh, those who are running Warp Speed, which is this military plan that costs $12 billion and is in charge of the vaccine rollout, they will vaccinate 20 million Americans by the end of December. And right now, as we speak, they are practicing what our shipping runs so that they can make sure that the delivery is smooth into all these communities. And so by January, they think they're going to have 70 million Americans inoculated with either a Pfizer or a Moderna vaccine. 
I mean, we know more about the American plan than we know of our own. We don't even know where we are in the queue, which tells me that there's no plan, because if there was a plan, this government, I mean, any government would be marching out the details, not just to reassure people, but because it would get them huge political points in the polls. I want to bring in the man who has been warning about this for some time. Way back in the summer, Amir Adharan, he's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, also trained as an epidemiologist. Good to have you, Professor. Alex, hi, how are you? Well, I'm probably not quite as busy as you because now you are uh, doing the old I told you so without even saying I told you so because you don't have to. Uh, you did. Um, and, and I'm kind of envisioning what will be seen as dribs and drabs of some kind of delivery throughout January. And it'll look, I think, to Canadians like we're getting something. But, it, you know, what, what's your estimation of, of what you've been hearing over the last week in political talk of what we're going to see as far as vaccinations? So here's what I understand to be true. The government has said that it will take delivery of 6 million vaccines, which is enough for 3 million people, by March. And I believe that's not going to be one lump shipment on you know, March 31st. It's probably going to be a rolling supply mm-hmm. in the first quarter of next year. The difficulty is that doesn't even vaccinate 10% of Canada. And so things are clearly going slowly. We can already see the signs of that because in the United States, planes with vaccine have started arriving. The very first one arrived from Belgium last week, making a delivery to Chicago. And the Americans are doing this even before the Food and Drug Administration has approved Mm -hmm. the vaccine. Why? Because they want to get it as close to the point of use as possible so that if the vaccine is approved, they can begin vaccinating right away. So they're they're filling up their supply chains right now so they can make a big push, you know, when FDA makes a decision, hopefully saying that this can be approved. It, it, we're doing the opposite in Canada. Health Canada also has not approved the vaccine, but we're not making any efforts to stockpile it or to get it closer to the point of use. And that is just a tremendously, tremendously wrong decision. And and the Prime Minister was asked several times in the last day or two, you know, he was asked today, certainly, but in the last day or two, he's been asked several times, you know, um, Health Canada has said that they can be shipped before approval. So we can do exactly what the United States is, is get them in the supply chain so that when they're approved, they're ready to go. And so the fact that the Prime Minister is saying, no, we can't do that tells us, well, no, we have nothing to ship. It either tells us that or it tells us something just as bad, which is that we are not ready to receive it. Remember that Pfizer vaccine is very fussy. It's the most fragile vaccine ever made. It needs to be frozen at about minus 80 degrees. You can't do that in a home freezer. You can't do that in an average freezer. You need a very specialized ultra-low freezer for that. And, And moving something around while keeping it at that temperature is pretty hard, too. You know, this isn't like moving cold beer in a cooler. This is tricky. So what it could mean is either, number one, as you say, Alex, we just don't have vaccine ready to be delivered, that we're not at the top of the list or even close necessarily, or number two, that we haven't built the supply chain, the cold chain in this country to handle it. And if it's number two, what that means is we're turning down opportunities to receive vaccine now just because we haven't built the system to handle it. 
Right. And, and But I do think there is some responsibility on the government of the day that you have to manage expectations. And I think Canadians, you know, are understanding to a point, but they will not be understanding, I think you can agree, if they're going to start seeing visuals all over the world of India or Mexico or America or all these countries getting vaccinated. And month after month, we are waiting, keeping our economies closed, watching long-term care deaths skyrocket, watching cases um, continue to climb, and continuing these lockdowns, which are, dis, you know, destroying destroying our economy. I mean, there's only so much patience. So at some point, why not just manage expectations? I would think the only thing the government can do right now is just be honest. Explain to us why the delay exists, because it's clear that there's going to be a delay. The prime minister has said it himself. Is it because we're trying to overcome legal barriers with bringing the vaccine in before Health Canada approves it? Well, that should be fixed. Mm-hmm. Is it because we don't have the cold chain in place to handle the vaccine and move it about the country? Well, that needs to be fixed. Is it because we don't have agreements in place with the provinces yet for how it'll be distributed? Same story. It's got to be fixed. It's not good enough for the prime minister to come out of his cottage at something like 11 in the morning every day, out the front doors like a cuckoo clock and repeat a message. He has to actually explain to Canadians what the barriers are and what government is doing to fix it. If he doesn't do that, I'm afraid patients will wear more thinly. Mm -hmm. Truth, truth helps. Being kept in the dark will not only possibly injure his government, but it will injure Canadians' trust in the vaccine program, which is something we can't afford. We need them to trust that program and be willing to take the vaccine when it comes. Right. So yeah, that's- I am, apart from the science, I'm very worried about how the communications are being dealt with now. Yeah, and you raise a very good point, and I've only got about 50 seconds left, but, you know, the Food and Drug Administration says that the type of authorization, it's not the same as a regular approval that, um, you know, they're still going to have to study the performance and safety of this vaccine. Can you kind of explain, like, it's not that they're going to put out a rush vaccine that's dangerous, but it still will need more study. Which is true with every vaccine ever, actually. Uh, It's not as, as... special this time as people think. We always do something called pharmacovigilance. And that's just Mm -hmm. a fuzzy word, big word, meaning that after you release a drug or a vaccine, you continue to watch its performance. And if there are people being harmed by it, you make sure to report that so the patterns are found and it's dealt with. So that's not unusual. I am totally happy to be there on day one and get the vaccine. And I hope other people will be too. Yeah, I will be just probably ahead of you. Or maybe I'll let my mother Behind go first. Me. But no, no, Behind no. me. We're going to over that. All right. <laughs> Appreciate your time on this, Professor. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. That is uh, Professor Amir Adaran. And look, this is not a partisan issue. I do think the government has a responsibility. And I think uh, the professor raises a very, very, um, uh, you know, smart and uh, important factors that you have to have trust. If you don't, then people come up with conspiracy theories and then they don't take the vaccine, which is not what we want. Nonetheless, we'll continue to discuss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So big day in the courts as the uh, defense's key witness continues on the stand. And this is a doctor out of the United States who is arguing that uh, Alec Manassian is not criminally responsible for driving a van down Young Street and killing 10 and injuring another 16 because of his autism spectrum disorder. And this is a doctor who taped several meetings with the accused and in a very extraordinary move told the judge that the only way he'd testify is if the videos never see the light of day, which is unheard of. Um, and Justice Malloy had to agree to this um, or Manassi would have basically no defense. And so a handful of reporters have been allowed to watch these videos. And one of those reporters is our own Catherine McDonald, of course, of Global News. She joins us now. Good to have you, Kath. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I mean, look, this is the second day Dr. Westfall, which is his name, has been on the stand. This is a forensic psychiatrist in the United States, and he specializes in autism. And um, he believes that this distorted Manassian's thinking similar to psychosis. And he's now into his second day. What are we learning? Well, we finally learned that he thinks that even though uh, Alec Manassian does not have psychosis, uh, his autism uh, puts him in a state of mind that is similar to psychosis in that he is completely devoid of any emotion. And while he knows um, the rules about you know the law and he knows that killing people is wrong, um, and he knows it's against the law. The problem is he he cannot understand the the horrific nature of this stuff and how it affects other people. And Westfall says he therefore, you know this lack of empathy is because uh, he lacks cognitive empathy because of his autism, and that makes him unable to appreciate um, how how killing people affects others. and he he is he, he in the videos today, we actually the first video which we saw, which was a three minute clip was very similar, I thought, to what we've seen with the interview that he did with Detective Rob Thomas after mm-hmm. his arrest, in that he describes uh, to Dr. Westfall what it was like driving down Young Street and, uh, you know, running down pedestrians. And he's very clinical and shows no emotion. Um, he talks about it, as Westfall says, as if he's going shopping or as if he's playing a video game, uh, you know, and he doesn't. There's no sense that he's remorseful or he's apologetic, but he also isn't like a psychopath. He doesn't do it for a sense of uh, grandeur or, you know, to make himself. He's not bragging about it either. So he, he just is devoid of, of any emotion. And Westfall says um, that's really a, a sign that he just doesn't have any empathy because of his uh, mental disorder, which is autism. Right. But, but I mean, the, at the base of this case or at the, you know, the, the foundation, we've been talking about the motivation being incel, this rejection of women that would have driven and that he was, you know, obsessed with people like uh, Elliot Roger and that. I don't get the sense from following what you're saying that he even understands the incel uh, component of this. No, it's it's interesting. You know, it, it, he was asked about whether people with autism or people who are vulnerable might be more likely to fall, you know, onto these websites, these dark, deep websites where, uh, you know, there's a lot of hatred. And Westfall said yes. He says he talked about another website that he was on, uh, Encyclopedia uh, Grammatica. It's an encyclopedia, mm-hmm. really, of hate. And he said, um, 
you know, he said this whole incel uh, expl- explanation he gave when he was interviewed after his arrest, he goes, I think he just he he to- he told Westfall that he was actually worried about losing his job, uh, failing at his new job. And, you know, he said, I, I told the interviewer that um, the-, the-, the police officer that because he said that people would have been more interested in that. The fringe groups would have been more interested in that narr- narrative. If I had told him I was worried about losing my job, that would have seemed random. And um, he knew that people would be bored by that. And Westfall said, you know, kind of like him. In fact, he described himself at one point as dust. Uh, so he, he wanted to make people care uh, that, about what he had done. And he knew that if it was just, oh, I thought I was going to you know, do badly at my new job, that no one would care. Um, and so, you know, I found it really interesting that Westfall said near the end of the day, he said, you know, he, he got sucked into these deep, these terribly ugly websites where you know, people perpetrate hate, uh, not just against, you know, women, but against people with autism. Um, there was one this, on this Wikipedia site uh, that I mentioned, uh, which is sort of an ugly site. It actually encourages people with autism to kill themselves. And he said, um, he goes, I'm sure that had Manassian never been on the Internet and on some of these sites, he wouldn't have been uh, motivated to, to carry out this attack. So he thinks that this um, some of these sites really encourage this kind of behavior, and, and he's convinced that's what what made Manassian do it. That being said, he goes, really, there is no explanation. He's given so many different explanations to different people. He, he says this is part of his, um, you know, the fact that he really had no, he really didn't know why he did it, and he's trying to explain it to people. He had he came up with many different explanations, including notoriety, but clearly just- he didn't do it for that reason. And just before I let you go, an interesting turn, I mean, now, you know, and, and I've heard it said a few times, is that he seems to hold a, a Bible, have that with him all the time, uh, and yeah. he seems to have taken to religion or turned to religion. Right, but it's funny because, I and I actually tweeted about this a, a couple of times when we were starting court after break, you'd see uh, the Zoom screen would be on Manassian in, in the jail room, and he'd be flipping through a book and earmarking it, and I, a few times I said, it looks like a Bible, and it came out late today that, in fact, he has taken... Uh, up religion, but it it's interesting. What he's doing is he's copying other prisoners, according to Westfall. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he's meeting people in jail, and then they're uh, giving him prayers or passages, and he's now uh, sort of mimicking what he's learned. So he, this is part of his repetitive behavior that we've heard about. Uh, the way he likes to, you know, and and that's just part of uh, what someone with autism might do is is copy or repeat things and we heard about this with his you know as a child banging on his head but the fundamental root of the argument here is that at some point um when he was developing developing his you know he he sort of stalled and he Mm -hmm. stalled at the level of a child where he couldn't really understand uh and empathize with others the way most of us do Boy, what a complex trial and what a complex uh, decision Justice Molloy is going to have with this one. All right, we'll continue watching, and I appreciate the uh, insight into it. Thank you. Okay, have a great night. Thanks. That is Catherine McDonald. You can follow her, of course. She is uh, on Twitter uh, tweeting the um, events as they unfold because she's one of few reporters that actually get to witness these videos. Good to have you here on this Tuesday. You know, we've been delving into long-term care, and one of the interesting uh, facets is that many cultures refuse to actually put their senior family members in nursing homes because there are barriers that don't just prevent their elderly from receiving the care they need. Often, they feel they must get creative in order to provide their loved ones with essential care that is required. In part seven of Care Gone Wrong Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes, Global's Shiba Sudiki explores the stigma behind putting loved ones in nursing homes in certain cultures. 
these are people we're talking about. This isn't, hey, I need somebody to watch my dog while I go somewhere else for the weekend. These are people. They loved you, they changed your diapers, they sacrificed for you. So could you not sacrifice for them in return? Nursing homes are considered to be a safe haven for many families who need elderly care. There are, however, several cultures that deem a nursing home to be the last place they would trust with their loved ones. Jespreet Ball is a 34-year-old college professor who has spent half her life caring for her grandparents. My grandparents came here, I think uh, my grandfather was 60, my grandma would have been in her late 50s. I was born a year after they came to Canada and they raised me from scratch. I refer to them as Biji and Babaji. Babaji was my first martial arts instructor. He carried me to preschool and carried me back. Sometimes I'd be sleeping, he'd carry me back. They are the reason Punjabi was my first language. Growing up in Canada, they are my connection to who I am and my identity. My grandma stopped walking when I was 17. That's when I first started taking care of her. It's the reverse of parenting, so I call them reverse milestones. So we've watched as um, she slowly lost the ability to do more and more, and she's currently in a hospital bed. And then my grandfather was the bulk of the caregiving that I did. And he was 92 when he passed away. And for the last two and a half years of his life, from the moment that he basically started stumbling to the washroom, that was the first thing that I stepped in to help with. And then it just reversed milestone, stopped walking and ended in a hospital bed in our living room. I would sleep with him at night. I would be with him during the day. I would work from his bedside, marking, lecture prep. We moved his bed into the living room. That's where I had set up my entire workstation. So I was never more than five strides away from him. And at night, I would shoot up straight as soon as he had to go to the bathroom. So it was a very intimate relationship. My Babaji had an oxygen machine that would compress oxygen and would wake me up every 20 minutes. It would like hiss. When you sleep on the floor of the living room of the house, everyone that walks through, everyone that goes to get a glass of water from the kitchen, everyone that comes home from work wakes you up. And so for two and a half years of my life, I didn't sleep fully. I didn't do what I wanted to with my time. My time was primarily dictated by what Babaji needed, and it really takes a toll on you. And even though he has uh, passed away, it's still, I still get up at night thinking he has to go to the bathroom. Those things are very hard to unlearn. He was my biggest advocate for getting an education. He was so proud when I got my PhD. He was unabashedly my biggest supporter. And so it wasn't, it felt really, really hard to take care of him, but it never felt like a sacrifice. Although Jespreet spent over two years caring for her grandfather, her family knew a nursing home was never an option. It's not a version of reality we have available to us. We don't have other families that model it for us. There was so much stigma. There was an understanding that, you know, if you don't care about your parents, you put them in a nursing home. And we don't do that. Other people do that. And we think poorly of people who put their parents in nursing homes. And so while we really could have done with the extra support, time and time again, we just weren't able to do it. What we see is that these like for-profit institutes are underfunded. 
the people who are making money off them are not spending it in the right place. People are not cared for in a way that's ideal. They're not culturally sensitive. They don't speak Punjabi. They don't serve Punjabi food. And so it was very much framed as like, people don't come back from nursing homes. We know if you're going, it's a one-way ticket and we're not sending our parents to that very dark place. Luma Sims is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Her research shows immigrants often struggle with putting their parents in nursing homes. In Eastern cultures, traditional cultures, that man and woman has a duty to care for their parents. They can't just walk away from that. The stigma comes from the pressure and the expectation that you are to care for your parents the way they cared for you. Let me tell you, there is a pressure in the Western cultures not to take care of them, to put them in nursing homes because the pressure is follow your dreams. The pressure is that it's all about you. In many families, it may be necessary to place your loved ones in a nursing home. There are, however, barriers immigrants can face in these same homes. Dr. Amit Arya is a palliative care physician and professor at McMaster University. I mean, we know in Ontario here, we have probably about 200 languages that are spoken, and yet only about 8% of our long-term care facilities are ones that are culturally or language-specific. So there's very little uh, investment that goes into that, and part of that is likely because we've designed long-term care homes as big warehouses, where we're putting in hundreds of people to receive care that's regimented and rationed rather than giving people individualized care. One big problem with our nursing home system is that these places are not designed to be culturally safe for people who face language barriers or cultural barriers in the system. And we know that for seniors, regardless of whatever area of the healthcare system they're trying to access, language and cultural barriers are very significant for them. case of nursing homes, you know, it has been a taboo in our community. Shala Khan lives in the greater Toronto area and emigrated from Pakistan in the early 90s. She believes the stigma may be reduced in her community if the word nursing home had another name. The word nursing home has a bad connotation. You know, if it's a hospital, people seem to be fine. But if it's a nursing home with the same everything that you're getting at the hospital, then, you know, it's a, it's a big taboo. So I think that if you change the name of a nursing home to some kind of a resort, maybe people will start just ending. Oh, my God, look at them. They're able to afford this resort. The whole context can change. South Asian community as well as Asian communities, even the Greek, um, Latin and Serbian communities, they're all very family-focused communities, they have a lot of collectiveness about them. And North American and British cultures are a little bit more individualistic. So I do find that it's part of the culture where people come together and I think it has a lot of benefits. They have so much focus on families being together. The focus on families from different cultures allows for an understanding that your elders will be kept at home for as long as possible. These families believe there is honor in caring for your loved ones yourself. And with patience, commitment, and sacrifice, people like Jaspreet Ball believe it to be a privilege to care for their elders. 
I have a lot of worldly accomplishments. I finished my PhD. I finished my fight training as a Muay Thai instructor. And I will always say that the fact that my Babaji died at home is my biggest accomplishment. It's the thing I'm most proud of. I don't think I could have done anything more with my life. For Global News, I'm Shiba Siddiqui. Tomorrow on our series, we explore what a 12-hour shift looks like for a nurse or personal support worker. It's all in a day of the life of a caregiver within a nursing home. When we come back, we'll delve into a case that I covered a whole long time ago as a reporter doing the courts. And now the accused in this case, which was a famous case where two sisters murdered their mother. Well, one of the sisters is breaking their silence. We talk about what she says in just a minute. Alex Pearson here on Point, and this is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, 6.30 sharp through 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.